Even though we're a history show, it's hard not to address current events, especially when what we're living through now, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, is the result of a long and complicated history. Ukraine has been an independent country since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. But that didn't erase Russian President Vladimir Putin's desire to bring it back under Russian rule. On February 24th, the Russian army invaded Ukraine. After a century of conflict over questions of autonomy and identity, war has broken out again. And Russian forces have been carrying out a brutal campaign against Ukraine. It's left many Ukrainians with no choice but to defend themselves and their country. I was a journalist for more than 20 years, but about uh, six weeks ago, I left all, all my work, so I left all, all the job, all the journalistic job, and uh, volunteered to become a soldier. Like more than 100,000 of his fellow Ukrainian citizens, Yuri Matsarsky has volunteered to fight for Ukraine in the Territorial Defense Forces, a branch of the Ukrainian military for civilian volunteers. In his old life, Yuri was a journalist. He covered global news as a print reporter and hosted a daily radio show. On one of his first days as a soldier, Yuri says his platoon leader told him to report to headquarters. He says some of the bigwigs there had a list of all the volunteers, and one of them recognized Yuri's name from his radio show. He was like, bring me this guy. I want him to be a press soldier. He was our listener before the war, so he loved our uh, radio show. He said to us that the headquarters has a lot of requests from um, foreign journalists uh, um, who are trying to, to understand what is going on, and he asked us to help. Now, instead of interviewing sources for his own stories, Yuri is the source. His fight is not on the front lines of the battlefield but rather in the media. Today, we're speaking to journalist-turned-soldier Yuri Matarsky. Coming up next, Yuri is a soldier in Kiev, Ukraine, fighting in the conflict against the Russian military. We're going to talk to Yuri, who was a journalist, is still a journalist, though a more unconventional one. As a press soldier, he's been responsible for making sure other volunteers get their stories heard people whose lives have totally changed since the start of the war. Like the famous playwright who spends his nights guarding the barracks, the young cosmetologist turned soldier, and then there's the clown. He finished uh, some kind of uh, circus school or something like that. So he became a clown. Two weeks ago, the first sunny day of the spring, he managed to... Uh, to stage uh, a real circus performance close to the checkpoint. And while a circus performance doesn't reflect the terror of this ongoing conflict, Yuri tells stories like these because they help humanize the people of Ukraine. And that can be a powerful weapon when you're going up against a world superpower. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. 
Today, we've got two stories for you from Ukraine's history, both about empowered civilians like Yuri taking matters into their own hands. People who called upon their own courage and creativity to protect what they believe in, whether out in the fields of rural Ukraine or center stage at Eurovision. That's after the break. Our first story is one of those great moments where highbrow and lowbrow intersect, where somehow international affairs, drag performance, linguistics, and pop music all collide. And it begins, like many great stories do, on social media. Andre Danilko has just over a quarter of a million followers on Instagram. He's a multi-hyphenate performer, musician, comedian, actor, based in Ukraine. He usually posts about projects he's working on. But lately, Danilko's posts have turned almost exclusively to the war in Ukraine. And since the war began, his following has pretty much doubled. His grid is full of violent scenes, buildings toppled, people fleeing onto trains. In a recent interview with journalist Dmitry Gordon, Danilko had some very harsh words for the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. He said, Vladimir Vladimirovich, how are you sleeping, fuck? How are you sleeping when you know what is happening? Danilko's audience likely isn't used to seeing him like this. They know him from his shows, or his gig as a judge on Ukraine's X Factor, or even his cameo in the Melissa McCarthy-led big-budget comedy Spy. But mostly, they know him by a different name altogether, because Danilko is most well-known for his alter ego, an original character he performs on stage. She's this over-the-top woman in giant sunglasses, bright red lipstick, and sporting a generous pair of fake breasts. Her name is Verka Serduchka. The character of Verka Serduchka is known for being totally larger than life, often decked out in sparkles, a feather boa, or clashing patterns. She's this heightened version of a middle-aged woman from rural Ukraine. And she works as a railroad sleeping car attendant, a working-class job. Danilko started performing as Verka in secondary school in 1991, the same year the USSR was in mid-collapse and Ukraine declared its independence from the Soviet Union. In the late 90s, Verka got her own TV show called SV Show, short for Spalny Vagon, or Sleeping Car in Ukrainian. It was sort of like a late-night variety show. Verka would invite celebrities on for interviews and deliver monologues about her life with a cigarette in hand. There's not really anything to compare this with in American media. I guess it's sort of like if you crossed RuPaul's Drag Race with The Tonight Show. Verka would talk in this dialect called Serzhik, a mixture of Ukrainian and Russian. 
She was body and unrefined, but fans loved how accessible Verka was. And she developed a cult following in Ukraine. Verka's <laughs> star was on the rise in the mid-aughts. It had been almost two decades since Ukraine had split from Russia. But time had not healed all wounds between the two former Soviet countries. It was in this context that Verka got her big break at the 2007 Eurovision Song Contest. If you're not familiar with Eurovision, first of all, you should be. Every year, participating countries select their best act to produce and perform an original song at the international contest. And that year... Andre Danilko was selected to represent Ukraine at the competition, in character, as Verka Serduchka. Hello, everybody. My name is Verka Serduchka. Me is For her performance, Verka took the stage in this head-to-toe silver getup, a knee-length dress made out of blindingly reflective metallic material matching heels, the signature red lip, and giant sunglasses. And on top of her head, a silver headpiece shaped like a giant star. She looked like Elton John dressed as the Tin Man wrapped in a disco ball. She sang a song called Dancing Lasha Tumbai. It's this really hyperactive pop dance track. And the lyrics are chaotic. There's a lot of counting in German... There's also some English and Ukrainian in there. And she repeats a lot of phrases over and over again. One being, I want to see Lasha Tumbai. That doesn't really mean anything, Lasha Tumbai. It's gibberish. But a lot of people noticed it sure sounds a lot like something else. Lasha Tumbai, Russia goodbye, eh? Put it all together and you get, I want to see Russia goodbye. Verka Serduchka caught heat from Russian viewers for the performance. She claimed the phrase was Mongolian for whipped cream. Yeah, somehow that explanation didn't smooth things over. Russian officials banned her from performing in their country for a year. But at the end of the day, Verka still got to sing Lasha Tumbai with gusto on the international stage. She won Ukraine a second-place standing, narrowly losing to Serbia. And whether she intended it or not, her song became a sort of unofficial anti-Russian anthem. Andrei Danilko says when he first invented Verka in school, he never imagined her staying power, that he'd be playing her all these decades later. But it makes sense to me that Verka Serduchka would become a kind of protest mascot for her country. Not just because she's good at sneaking subversive messages into bonkers pop songs. Her history maps onto Ukraine's history with Russia. She was born the same year Ukraine became independent. And her dialect, Serzhik, that blend of Russian and Ukrainian, 
It emerged precisely because the two countries are so closely intertwined in their histories. Verka is a reminder that there are nations in conflict, and then there are the people caught up in that conflict, whose lives are shaped by it. People who survive and adapt as power and national borders shift across generations. Verka Serduchka carries all that history with her. So why not choose her to carry a message of Ukrainian independence? She kind of is already. Recently, a Russian military radio station was hijacked by some unknown actors who used the airwaves to play Verka's Eurovision hit. And Andrei Danilko himself has spoken up about dancing Lasha Tumbai. And he isn't claiming Mongolian whipped cream anymore. From this point forward, he says Verka Serduchka will be singing the words, Russia, goodbye. After the break, when Ukrainian civilians fought back against Russia almost 100 years ago. Welcome back. Our next story is coming from producer Ramoy Philip, and it's quite a bit different from the one I just shared with you. And Ramoy is here to help me set it up. Hey, Ramoy, how's it going? I'm well, how are you? Well, I'm very um, intrigued by uh, the story that you're bringing to us. Tell me a little bit more about what you found. Yeah, it's wild. Like, there's a very similar but dark story that happened almost a century ago in Ukraine that involved, unfortunately, Russia and some very um, vile aggression and conflict. And it's really powerful to see how the Ukrainians stood up almost a century ago. Yeah, it really feels like that old cliche of history repeats itself. But I think it's a really important story to share. So I'm happy you'll be telling us, even though, you know, it's it's a tougher one. Um, you want to take it away? Okay, let's do it. Have you ever thought that the ideas of borders are super, super wild? Well, there's no better place to peep that than in Eastern Europe, where the borders have been complicated for centuries. There's been a lot of push and pull, especially for what we know as Ukraine, whose name actually means borderland in Russian and Polish. But for the sake of argument and time, we'll start our story in the 20th century. For a short while, from 1918 through 1922, Ukraine was an independent nation known as the Ukrainian People's Republic, or Ukrainian National Republic. At the same time, Ukraine's big neighbor to the east, Russia, was going through a bloody civil war. Eventually, the Red Army took control of Moscow. Bad news for the Russian emperor, and, as it turns out, bad news bears for Ukraine. Because they were independent for a quick minute, but then they got incorporated into the newly created United States of Soviet Russia, the USSR. By 1922, Joseph Stalin, the other mustache-wearing, gulag-creating, mass-murdering Marxist dictator who gave no funks, had started to climb the communist rungs of power. At that time, the USSR had large concentrations of peasant farmers. Industry was lacking, resources were scarce, but Stalin had big dreams for his Soviet republic. So he turned his attention towards agriculture and Ukraine. You see, Ukraine is often called the breadbasket of Europe. It's got plenty of fertile land for farming wheat and corn. And it's been that way for centuries. Think families and communities just living off the land. 
Stalin's plan was to take these small Ukrainian farms and pool them into large state-run farms, a process known as collectivization. By 1930, thousands of USSR soldiers marched themselves into Ukraine to oversee this shift. From that point on, Ukrainian farmers could only farm what Stalin's government ordered them to. The rest of his plan went something like this. The USSR would sell some of the harvests, mostly grains, to the greater world. The cash they made would go on to fund a new powerful industrial USSR. The food would also help feed industrial workers who were building these modern industrial cities. Most of all, Stalin and the party would have total control over what food the Ukrainians had access to. The baddest farmers, the ones with the most successful farms, weren't going to give up the ghost that easily. They killed their own animals and destroyed their own equipment. Basically, Ukrainians would rather sacrifice their livelihoods than hand them over to Stalin. When Stalin found this out, he made them public enemy number one. He leaned into this one very pointed name for these farmers. He kept calling them kulaks, or the fist. And for Ukrainians, collectivization came to be known as dekulakization. But they, along with the average Ukrainians, they weren't going to go down that easily. The fist would rise up. Historians have documented thousands of rebellions during the first years of this collectivization push. There are many accounts, like where in one region, villagers armed with pitchforks, axes, and homemade firearms attacked USSR guards in the area. Elsewhere, 1,500 villagers banded together to take back their city from Soviet police. Then they marched to nearby villages armed with pitchforks, hunting rifles, knives, and guns. They killed Soviet party members along the way. Ukraine would take it in the gut for this one. In retaliation, the Soviet regime took dramatic measures to withhold food from the Ukrainians who were left. Police raided their homes, removed food. They prevented towns from receiving food shipments. Any Ukrainian who tried to take crops from those state-run farms to feed themselves and their family were often punished or killed. As part of Stalin's most dramatic punishment for the actions of these farmers, a cordon was created around the Ukrainian province to prevent people from escaping. Over one-third of the villages were put on blacklists for failing to meet grain quotas. Blacklisted villages were encircled by troops. Residents were prevented from leaving or receiving any supplies. It became a death sentence. By 1933, Stalin's policing of food in Ukraine got so dire, there were documented stories of cannibalism. At the height of the famine, in June of 1933, Ukrainians were dying at a rate of 28,000 people per day. So one of the most fertile lands in Europe, and people were starving. Thousands of them, which turned into millions. It was basically a man-made famine that came to be known as the Holodomor. This translates in Ukrainian to death by hunger. And you would think the world would be aghast by this Holodomor. But word really didn't get out of Ukraine. Throughout the 1930s, the Soviet government kept silent about the famine. News of it was suppressed through intense censoring. 
There were foreign journalists living and working in Moscow, but they weren't allowed to leave the city without special permission, much less travel to Ukraine unsupervised. Other journalists sat by quietly because they were being bribed by Stalin's regime. And let's be honest, this was happening at the same time as the Great Depression. It was a tough time for world governments dealing with crises of their own. Then there was the Soviet propaganda machine. Stalin painted this beautiful reality of how great everything was going, of how everyone in the USSR was on board with the Republic's dramatic industrial change. Through propaganda like this film from 1935, Russia showed happy farmers reaping the successes of collectivization. Farmers who had barely survived the Holodomor. Коллективизация. Впервые прозвучав в далеком 27-м, это новое слово звало в будущее, указывало крестьянам путь в социализм. You see, by this point, Stalin's plan kind of had worked because this genocide by famine had been so brutal that any Ukrainian farmers left were forced to accept this collectivization regime as their new norm. And to anyone who questioned the propaganda machine, the Soviet government would just say that Ukrainians weren't starving. No, they were the bad actors creating a famine myth to undermine Stalin's noble plan. Sounds like a plan out of Putin's playbook. Or I guess, actually, maybe it's the other way around. Eventually, word of the Holodomor did get back to the West, thanks to journalists who were brave enough to report the truth through the stories of survivors and refugees of World War II. Some estimates place the number of Ukrainian lives lost between 1930 and 1933 as high as 3.9 million. It's almost surreal to see this historical parallel. An unprovoked Russian tyrant invades Ukraine, causes havoc and a needless loss of life. Then he creates his own reality about what is and isn't happening. We're lucky to have stories coming in from the front lines telling us what's really going down in Ukraine. Of the bravery of everyday citizens not going to put up with a needless invasion. A bravery that has this powerful lineage back to the 1930s when Ukrainians fought back. A bravery that we can say we're truly not past. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Laura Newcomb. Next week, strap on your beer goggles because we're breaking down Cinco de Drinco. Who actually thought about connecting the brand to Cinco de Mayo? I did. Yeah. That was me. (laughs) The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producers are Ramoy Phillip and Julie Carley. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. 
Editing by Katie Feather, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Translations by Peter Ruzavin. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. That final song? It's called Oi Nema Nema Ni Vitru Ni Chvili. Or in English, Neither Wind Nor Waves. It was performed by the Kubzari Ukrainian Folk Ensemble. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzika. Special thanks to Meryl Horn, Masha Udenseva-Brenner, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. If, if you will be with me right now, You'll be sitting in the very center of the city, looking to the, uh, one of the oldest uh, uh, churches in the Eastern Europe, which is called Sofia. And it's still not dark yet, it's still light in here. <laughs>